Amen. In light of both painful current events and lasting legacies of injustice and discrimination, it's fairly evident that there is a need in our society for what we might call cross-cultural bridge building. Cross-cultural bridge building. This is not a new need. It's always existed and it probably always will exist in one form or another. And certainly this is already happening in many places and in many ways. But there's always a need for more of this to happen. There will always be a need for more of us, for each of us, to step outside of our comfortable circles and our comfortable routines to connect with and listen to and bless those who in some way may be different than us. People we wouldn't normally, that we might feel like there's a line, that there's a, a gap between us and them. In fact, if and when you do this, I think many of you could agree from experience, it's usually you who walked away, walks away blessed by the experience. Did you know that Jesus was a cross-cultural bridge builder? Jesus Christ was a cross-cultural bridge builder. This morning we're going to read about a very powerful example of that very thing. So let's watch Jesus in action by returning to the Gospel of John. We're looking this morning at chapter 4 of the Gospel of John. If you're not already there in your Bible or on a Bible app, please head over to John chapter 4, starting from the beginning. So we're going to look actually at verses 1 through 6 to get us started this morning. As you'll see, these verses, verses 1 through 6, help us understand the context and uh, the setting for this story about Jesus, this account uh, of Jesus. Look at verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, that's something, isn't it, right? We know John the Baptist's ministry was very, very popular. It was very big, a big thing going on back in that day in that area. So when we read that his ministry was making and baptizing more disciples than John, that gets our attention. Look at verse 2. Uh, John adds this qualification as one who was there himself, so he knows. Although Jesus himself did not baptize, he wasn't baptizing anyone, but only his disciples, they were doing so under his authority. He left, Jesus left Judea when he heard this about the Pharisees, and he departed again for Galilee. That is, he headed north into the northern part of Israel. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar. And near that, it's near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, look at how John gets 
ever more specific about the setting of this story as we move down through the verses. Did you see that? So the deeper we get into this, he's getting more specific. He begins with a broad note about the setting. Verses 1 through 3, Jesus had become aware of these rumblings among the Pharisees about the popularity of his ministry in Judea. But we see that based on his decision to leave and head north, it seems he's being very careful, isn't he? He's being very careful about how and when to engage with the Jewish religious leadership. He doesn't need, need, he doesn't need unnecessary controversy right, or wet, right away because he knows that there's a plan. His father has a plan for his life. There are months and years of ministry coming up that he is going to fulfill the course that his father has laid out for him. So he's wise in this way of avoiding some of this controversy, and he heads north. But, note from, but from that note there about the political and cultural setting, look what John does in, in chapter 4. He moves to specifics about the geographical setting. So to get to Galilee from Judea, when Jesus wanted to get to Galilee, his timetable, he had to pass through a region known as Samaria. And there is a town called Sychar. It's right near the biblical town, of the Old Testament town of Shechem, right at the base of two mountains. They're really kind of like hills. They're not that huge. One is called Mount Ebal, and one is called Mount Gerizim. Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. This is that area right below to the southwest, southeast, and to the northeast of those two mountains, which are just kind of across from each other. So this is where Jesus is. He stops here at Jacob's well, verse 6, wearied as he was from his journey. He needs a break. He needs a break. Isn't that a wonderful reminder that our Lord was 100% human? A testimony to the incarnation because he was the God-man didn't mean he didn't get tired. He was tired from all of that walking. He needed a drink. He needed to take a break. He needed something to eat. And we find out, of course, that his disciples had gone into the village to get some food. But here he is. He has stopped. Now, this well is most likely a well that Jacob, also known as Israel, right? Israel, dug, or he used this well when he lived at Shechem. Doesn't, doesn't tell us about this well specifically, but it tells us in Genesis 33 that this is where one of the places that Jacob lived right here. Notice that John also gives us ever more specific details. He gives us the chronological setting in addition to the geographical setting. What time is it? It's about the sixth hour, which means it's high noon. It is noon when Jesus sits at this well. So, we've established the setting, haven't we? Here's the setting. At that hour, at that well, in that town, this is what happened to Jesus, according to John. Look at verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, 
a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, (laughs) you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well, and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So let's stop there. At the end of verse 9, we're told something about the need for bridge building. Do you see that? The need for bridge building. It says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Even though the Jews and the Samaritans had common ancestors, there had some common ancestors, there were real historical grievances and there were real religious differences that existed and that generally inspired contempt for Samaritans among the Jewish people. So Jesus asking a Samaritan woman for a cup of water was quite out of the ordinary. But Jesus was doing something, wasn't he? Deliberate. He was bridge building. What did the bridge building of Jesus look like? Well, take a look again. How does he begin? First of all, notice that Jesus starts by ignoring the boundaries of prejudice that society around him had drawn. He doesn't care about those. He's not interested in those. He reaches out to this woman, not as a Samaritan, but simply as a spiritually needy human being. A woman made in the image of God. Isn't it interesting when we think about Jesus that the last chapter began with Jesus having a conversation with an esteemed Jewish leader, Nicodemus. And now one chapter later, John is highlighting a conversation, Christ's conversation with a Samaritan of all people. And even more surprising, a Samaritan woman. But that's Jesus, isn't it? That's Jesus. Look at how he begins here once he crosses those lines and says, you know, I don't care about these boundaries. Look what he, how he begins speaking with her. He begins with a basic need. Give me a drink. Now, he really did, need a, he really did want a drink, of course. It says he was wearied. That's why he sat there. He wanted a drink. But then what does he do? He goes on. 
using familiar ideas with her, ideas that would be are familiar to all people. Thirst, refreshment, satisfaction, sustenance. He uses these ideas to pique her curiosity about something far, far better. He uses this conversation, these commonly understood ideas, to pique her curiosity about someone far, far better. Yes, someone even greater than Jacob. Someone greater than Israel, the new Israel, Jesus Christ. Here's the key phrase in this passage. If you want to understand all of this, this is it. Verse 10. This is, this is it. Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So we know there's two things in focus here, aren't they? And they're, they're, they're connected. The gift of God and the one who can give that gift. The gift of God and the one who gives that gift. That's where Jesus wants to take her in this entire conversation. So all the way down through verse 26 as we continue this morning. That's the key verse. Verse 10. So it's clear, isn't it, that the woman is not always tracking with Jesus. (laughs) She's struggling to understand where Jesus is taking the conversation. But it's also obvious that Jesus is building a bridge from himself as the giver of life over to this woman in her position of need. And that's what Jesus seems to highlight next is her need. Take a look at verse 16. Well, look again at verse 15. She says, Sir, give me this water. Now, wait a minute. That's what Jesus described in verse 10, isn't it? So it's actually come to pass what Jesus said in verse 10. If you would know who was speaking to you in the gift of God, you would have asked him for water. Well, guess what? Now she's asking him. Now she's asking him for water. This living water about which Jesus spoke. Again, even if she doesn't fully understand what he's saying, how he's using the language here, notice how Jesus begins to walk her back across the bridge that he's built. He does this beginning in verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Usually in that culture, a man would not address a woman directly. He would talk to her husband if the husband was present. Kind of a courtesy. It was appropriate in that culture. He says, go call your husband and and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one, the man you now have, is not your husband. What you have said is true. So, the conversation, let's stop there. The conversation may have started with Jesus expressing his need for a drink of water, but as it continues, Jesus wants her to understand that he understands her spiritual need for living water. And even if she didn't get the the metaphors before, 
He's bringing it home, isn't he now? He's bringing it home, and he's revealing something important about himself. As a woman who has been in five different marriages and is now shacking up with yet another man, it's clear that she is spiritually, she is morally thirsty. And she's trying to meet that need in fleshly, worldly ways. That may be, in fact, why she's coming to the well in the middle of the day. Usually women would come to the well at sunset. It's usually the time they would gather there to draw the water, to bring, bring water home. In fact, it's believed that there was a water source even closer to Sychar than Jacob's well. So it may be that not only has this woman come in the middle of the day, but also gone further to avoid any engagement with the other women in the town. Because maybe she has a reputation. It's not clear exactly. Or she wants to avoid the questions. She wants to avoid the looks. Notice, though, where Jesus takes the conversation here in verse 19. After exposing her condition, her moral situation, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. You are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. The Jews built the temple in Jerusalem as God had it indicated to them. The Samaritans built a rival temple on Mount Gerizim. So a lot of animosity when you've got people claiming that this is the correct temple <laughs> on Mount Gerizim to Yahweh. This is the right temple. She's bringing this whole controversy right out into the open. You Jews say Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, maybe even pointing to Mount Gerizim, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Literally in the Greek, the salvation. The salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirits. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Wow. So, scholars actually disagree about verse 20 in terms of the woman's intent. What is the woman's intent? What's driving her to say what she says in verse 20? She acknowledges, of course, that Jesus must be a prophet because he's revealed specific details, intimate details about her life that he could not have known, her past and present situation. But in verse 20, is she trying to change the subject because uh, things are getting uncomfortably personal? 
<laughs> is she trying to move it from her to kind of these religious controversies? Maybe. But maybe the identity of Jesus might also be driving her toward what she believes is a key spiritual question. If this Jew really is a prophet, if this Jew really is from God, should I listen to him? He's a Jew. Should I listen to him? Should I trust him given what I've always been told about the Jews, how they're misguided and misinformed? how they are wrong when it comes to the worship of God. You see, she might be bringing this up not as some kind of distracting conversation about religious you know, debates. It may be that she really wants to understand how to worship God, where the truth is to be found, as she, a Samaritan, is talking to Jesus, a Jew. Where Jews and Samaritans only saw old animosities and walls of disagreements, and to be clear, Samaritan doctrine was wrong. It was incorrect. Notice what Jesus is doing instead. He is pointing us to a new bridge. He's pointing her to a new bridge, a bridge that is open to all peoples, that any and every person might become a true worshiper of God. Whatever her intent, the question works perfectly in terms of Jesus bringing her across this bridge. <laughs> it doesn't matter if she's trying to distract him or not. It's, it's perfect. He knows exactly where to go with this conversation, where to take it. He wants, the Father wants her to become a true worshiper of God in spirit and in truth. And for a true worshiper, a true worshiper does not need to worry about location. A true worshiper does not need to worry about ritual. A true worshiper does not need to worry about ethnic identity. No, verse 23, a true worshiper will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Now notice how this, this conversation, how all this talk of such radical changes, something so different than she had ever heard, notice how it causes the woman to think about Messiah. She goes to this idea of Messiah. When he comes, things will be clear. When he comes, all things will be evident to us. I may not understand what you're saying right now, Jewish man, asking me all these questions, bringing all these things to my attention, who seems to know me, who knows my past, who knows my present. I don't understand quite what you're saying, but when Messiah comes, he will explain all of these things to us. Now remember, the Samaritans only accepted the first five books of the Bible. After that, they didn't accept any other writings. That means they had very little information about the Messiah. Interestingly, what they believed about the Messiah was mainly based on Deuteronomy 18, where Moses had prof promised a prophet who would arise after him. That's why sometimes in the Gospels, to identify Jesus, they ask him, are you the prophet? The Jewish leaders say, are you the Messiah? Are you the prophet? Are you Elijah? Well, the prophet is not Elijah. The prophet is the, the one that Moses foretold. And so the Samaritans expected this prophet to come. And she's already identified him as, as a prophet. 
right? So God is laying each stepping stone one after the other to bring this woman to himself. Why? Because he's seeking her. Like a shepherd going after a lost sheep. He's seeking her. The Father is seeking those who will worship him. And as she wants to understand Messiah, she's waiting for Messiah. So this understanding, but, 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 but her understanding her thirst, her understanding her longing for what a Messiah would bring. When Jesus understands these things about her, he does something here that according to the other gospel accounts, he never did on any other occasion before his trial. He explicitly said, I am the Messiah. Now, Jesus could do that in Samaria, right? In Samaria, him saying that he was the Messiah was not going to light the match that might light the wick, that might light the powder keg of political upheaval. In Samaria, that wouldn't be an issue. And so uh, the only time that recorded before his trial, the night before he was crucified, the only time he ever claimed or explicitly said that he was the Messiah is right here with the Samaritan woman in John 4. So what have we seen? This amazing conversation between Jesus and this woman. What have we seen? We've witnessed Jesus building a bridge across ethnic lines and in spite of societal boundaries, he's building a bridge and he uses a conversation, a mundane conversation, an everyday conversation that begins talking about a drink of water. He uses this conversation about thirst and water from a well to stir this woman to draw her out like water is drawn out of a well, to draw her out, to offer her living water. What was this living water? In chapter 7, take a look here on the screen. Chapter 7 of John, verses 38 and 39, Jesus declares, Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. So guess what? Living water is a reference to the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is offering a Samaritan woman the Holy Spirit. He is offering her eternal life through the Holy Spirit. He is offering her transformation through the Holy Spirit. Why does she need this living water? Well, Jesus simply points out one area of her life in which her moral, her spiritual need is evident. He could go on to give many more as he could with any one of us. And as he does this, as he reveals something about her, he is revealing his glory to this woman. He's beginning to reveal his glory to this woman. And suddenly the conversation is no longer about well water. It's about God and true worship. From water to God and true worship. Jesus, Jesus masterfully brings that conversation to God's appointed end. And in the end, the woman comes to understand that this thirsty Jew at the well is none other than the Messiah of God. 
who has come to offer her the water of life. Now, what do we do with a story like that? Well, in light of that story, I'd like to challenge you as a follower of Jesus in two ways. I want to, follow, I want to challenge you in two ways. First, I want to challenge you to be a bridge builder like Jesus. Be a bridge builder like Jesus. What did John 3 said? It said, for God so loved the world. Do you hear the bigness of that love? Do you hear the wideness of that love, the breadth of that love, the openness of that love? Jesus came for all people, didn't he? He wasn't deterred by the lines that people draw between one another. And we do love to draw lines, don't we? Oh, our society is so good at it. We excel at drawing lines between one another and living by those lines and exalting those lines. He saw past all that. He saw past to, those, to the spiritual thirst that all of us have in common. He saw past those lines to the potential of all people to be true worshipers of God. And even as John would see in his later years, before the throne, in a vision given to him, people from every tribe and tongue and nation worshiping the Father, worshiping the one on the throne, and worshiping the Lamb, he would understand, maybe in a new way, for God so loved the world. He would understand what Jesus spoke when he said the Father is seeking worshipers. And he said those words to a Samaritan woman. Shouldn't we do the same, brothers and sisters? Are the lines inhibiting us? Or are the lines, do we move past the lines, looking to the common humanity, the common thirstiness of each person as a sinner? Do we see the potential in all people to be true worshipers of God? Or have we boxed them in? Have we put labels on them or accepted society's labels for them so much so that it, it makes our heart callous towards them? It desensitizes us to the heart of Jesus flowing through us to all people. From this conversation around a Samaritan well to your conversations around the water cooler at work, God wants to take your everyday interactions and use them to point people to eternal satisfaction in Jesus. Do you believe that? He does. We should, right? We should want this. God wants us to learn from Jesus' example here as we've listened to him, as we watch him. Uh, Maybe he'll use a conversation that you have about someone's health. To, it'll give you an opportunity to point them to eternal healing in Christ. Maybe he'll use a conversation about someone's finances to point them to the riches of God's grace in Jesus. Maybe a conversation about a broken relationship in someone's life will lead you to your testimony, to that story of a restored relationship with God through Jesus. You see, any of those conversations, any of those everyday interactions can be used. It can be a, a bridge into someone's life, helping them understand their need, pointing them to that deepest need. 
Jesus' first priority was not social change. He didn't engage this woman in order to cross ethnic lines for the sake of crossing ethnic lines. He wasn't founding a society of Jews and Samaritans working together for clean water for the region, right? That's not what he was doing. That's not a bad idea. That's probably a good idea. I could get behind that if I lived in that region. But that was not the priority of Jesus. Jesus was not building bridges for merely social change. He understood that far more important than the relationship between Jews and Samaritans was the relationship between this woman and her creator. That what was, was most important. Does that mean he's uninterested? He was uninterested in social change? Absolutely not. Not at all. But lasting social change, no matter what divides, where the dividing line is and who drew it, lasting social change is accomplished through spiritual change. Spiritual change. And when we pursue God's agenda in all our relationships, the agenda highlighted here, chapter 3, God so loved the world, what we see Jesus doing here, building bridges, when we do that without partiality, we highlight the heart of God for all people. It's the very thing our world is thirsting for, but they don't know that that's what they need. It's driving them to, in many cases, good causes, in many ways, important decisions and movements towards change, and yet it's through worldly strategies. And it won't change the heart necessarily, right? It won't change the heart in, in only the way God can change the heart. This doesn't mean we shouldn't be involved in efforts to accomplish some good. It simply means that we keep at all times, the priority of the greatest good. And the greatest good is not social change as an end in itself. It's spiritual change that then results in how people interact with one another, how they change from the inside out. A second challenge, a second challenge. First of all, be a bridge builder like Jesus, but second, remember the bridge Jesus built to you. Remember the bridge that Jesus built to you. This story will hardly be an inspiration for ministry if you yourself have not drunk deeply of the living water Jesus makes possible. God wants you to hear this story in John 4 and, and, and through it hear your own story. As you listen, you're hearing your own story in this woman's story. It's how you how Jesus met you at a particular time and place in your everyday, maybe when you least expected. It's a story about how he reminded you of your desperate need, how he offered you living water and called you to true worship, how he confirmed his lordship to you that he alone is the savior that you've longed for, even if you didn't know it. You see, her story is my story. Her story is your story. And it could be the story of that person living next door to you. 
It could be the story of the person at work. It could be the story of your rival on social media that you're upset about and you're always, you know, I'm going to win this argument. I'm going to, rather than I want to win this person to Christ. Rather than a heart full of the grace of God to see his purposes realized in each person's life. We want this story to be their story, don't we? Just as this story is truly our story. Maybe that particular time and place where Jesus met you is right here and right now. Maybe it is. Maybe you're hearing this and he is inviting you to reach out to him in faith. The gift of God is being offered to you this morning. Living water, eternal satisfaction, or maybe Maybe that particular time and place was several years ago for you. Maybe it was many, many years ago. Whenever, wherever, however it happened, let God stir your heart this morning through this story. Let Him stir your heart this morning as you remember that Jesus came and built a bridge into your life. He reached you. He reached you. The lines that we draw in the sand between one another are so often inspired by sin, aren't they? Now, there's times that we draw lines that are important to draw. Agreed, right? We need to draw lines at times. Those those are important. But many times we draw lines in the sand and they are inspired by sin. But sin itself is a trench, a canyon between us and our Creator. Not just a line in the sand. It's a canyon, a deep crevasse that only Jesus can bridge. He's the only one who can do that. So I ask you, is spiritual thirst gripping you this morning? Do you feel that pain, that spiritual thirst? If you do, come to Jesus. Look to Christ with new eyes. Ask Him to help you cross those lines as well. Uh, As you receive of that living water through the Holy Spirit, as He refreshes you, Paul talked about it being renewed day by day in His inner person. I love that. 2 Corinthians 4. We're renewed day by day. As you're refreshed in the Holy Spirit, also ask God to help you cross those lines with living water, the living water of Jesus, those lines that the culture or maybe those lines that you personally have drawn. Ask Him to help you cross them. And may conversations about religion always lead to conversations about worship, about true worship. May they always lead to the identification of Jesus as Messiah.